This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 48 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am going to talk about language screenings. So this is the process that speech pathologists use in order to identify kids who are in need of further evaluation. And the reason that I wanted to cover this topic today is because it's very confusing, both for the people doing it and the people who are having to understand it because either one of the students in their class is going through a screening or because they have a child who might need to be screened. So if you are a speech pathologist, if you are a teacher, and if you are a parent and you have questions about the screening process when it comes to identifying kids who are in need of speech and language services in the school systems, and also I will talk a little bit about medical settings as well, then you will find this episode really helpful. So before I get into the episode, I wanted to mention a resource that's going to give you more information if you want to take the information that I share in this episode a step further. It's called 
the Academic Language Rating Scale, and it is a resource that I have developed for the members of my signature program for SLPs, Language Therapy Advance Foundations. If you're not already familiar with that program, that is my course that outlines a complete process for SLPs who are treating students who need support in the area of language processing, comprehension, and literacy. So, This rating scale is part of the resources in that program, and I wanted to make this one specific rating scale available to everyone publicly just because I think it outlines some answers and and gives people some clarity to to an area that is commonly confusing for people. So this rating scale is a tool that can be used in order to help speech pathologists do a number of things. Number one, to identify students who might be in need of evaluations, or it can also be used to collect additional information when students are already getting services and we want to know how they are doing in multiple settings, specifically in the classroom setting. So there are a number of limitations to some of the formal assessments that are given in schools and the formal evaluation tools because they only show a small picture of what that child can do in a very specific structured setting. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that just because they perform one way in this particular assessment situation, we can't necessarily say that they're going to perform that way in all situations. So it's important to have some additional non-standardized tools that can give you some rich descriptive information and just help you to elaborate on what you found using some of those formal tools. So really, that's what this academic language rating scale is designed to do. It is still a rating scale, so you can somewhat use it to quantify things, but it can also be used as a jumping off point so that a therapist and a teacher might be able to have a conversation about how a student is doing. It can help you to create kind of an agenda or to take those conversations that you might have about a student and how they're doing and make them a little bit more focused by giving you some specific areas to talk about. So that's how I use tools like this in my practice. And this is how I recommend that SLPs use this specific tool. Now, if you are a parent, it can also be useful because I know it can be pretty confusing to understand some of the assessment procedures that the teachers and therapists are doing with your child. So if you want to have some insight to some of the things that they're looking at when they are assessing your child, then you are certainly welcome to check it out as well. So to download your copy of the Academic Language Rating Scale, all you need to do is go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language screening. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash language screening. And you'll just have to enter your name and email, and then you'll get that resource delivered right to your inbox. So let's talk about language screenings. So I'm going to share this 
process from the SLP's perspective because I am an SLP and that is the perspective that I had when I was in the school systems. And my intention is just to make this less confusing for everybody because sometimes just understanding one perspective can provide some clarity for everybody who's involved in the process. So I wanted to just say before we get started, my intention is to provide some clarity about this process and then give you some more information and tools that you can use to help you through it, whether you're a therapist, whether you're a teacher, or whether you're a parent. But my intention is to not totally dismiss formal evaluation tools. I am going to be sharing a non-standardized evaluation tool. That just means that although it does have some structure, it's not something that is norm referenced, meaning you get some kind of a score that tells you this is average, this is not average. So it doesn't give you something like that. So it's it's not a standardized assessment. And the reason that I'm sharing this is because, as we know, there are some limitations to standardized assessments because, as I talked about in episode 47, sometimes when you are using data and statistics, they can be really helpful because they're objective, but also because of the way that they work, sometimes boiling a student or their abilities down to a specific number, obviously there can be issues with that because there are so many nuances that we can't see with just scores and numbers. So my intention here is to supplement that, not throw it away. There is a lot of value in norm-referenced and standardized assessments, but we don't want to only use those. We want to look further into things. So There are some different screening tools that I'll discuss today specifically that I have used because I know that a lot of the therapists out there want to know what tools they should be using. So I am just suggesting that you continue to use some of those formal tools, but at the same time, know that there are other options as well, and you don't only have to rely on those formal tools. So we should use them together depending on the situation. So let's start with some of the questions that I commonly get from SLPs when it comes to language screenings. So usually the scenario is there might be a student who is, and let's say that they're in a school setting, And I'm going to use a school setting because even if you are screening a child in a medical setting, if you're talking about a school-aged child, many times the reason that they are being screened is because they are having difficulties in school because school is such a challenging language-rich environment. That's a lot of times where we start to notice some of these issues, whereas with different functional settings, sometimes the language demands are not as sophisticated. So sometimes kids might slip through the cracks or we just might not notice that they're struggling as much because it's just not as challenging. So you can certainly have a child who does struggle in functional situations, 
but a lot of times it's even more apparent in the school setting. So that's why I'm going to give that specific example, but just know that if you are a parent and you have a child who is struggling in school, you can have them screened at school, but you also have the option to have them screened in a medical setting if you were to approach an SLP who had a private practice, for example. So you have both options. I do recommend starting with the school and seeing what you can utilize there and then seeing what else you might need to supplement. So when it comes to language screenings, again, usually there is a child who there are some academic concerns and we might be questioning, are they having a hard time processing language or are they having a hard time communicating? Whether that be because they are having a hard time formulating sentences or just getting their ideas across. Maybe they are not able to follow along with the pace of the classroom instruction because the directions are complicated and they're not understanding them. Or sometimes just academically, you know, maybe they're not making progress in reading or math is difficult. So anything that has multiple steps is a challenge. And we might be looking at, okay, do they do they need to, do we need to look into this further to see, is this particular student having a difficult time processing language? And you also might have students who have other things that are related to communication, whether it be pronouncing sounds and, and maybe their speech is difficult to understand, or you may have a student who stutters or is losing their voice because they are using some kind of a vocal pattern that is abusive to their vocal cords, and we need to remediate that. So those are all some examples of reasons that a child might be referred for a speech and language screening. What I am going to focus in on would be the language screenings, mostly because that is one of the areas where I get the most questions because it's less straightforward than the other ones. A lot of times for SLPs, they have a pretty good process for screening for articulation, which means they're, the student might be having a hard time pronouncing different sounds. Usually that's a little bit more straightforward. Or if the student stutters or is having some issues with their voice, then that's a little bit easier to detect from a screening standpoint, but language is a little bit messier. Now, before I go further, I wanted to just clarify the purpose of a screening, because even sometimes as a practitioner, it can get easy to get stuck in the weeds and feel like you have to do more than you really need to. So it can be easy to overthink and overcomplicate this. And if you are a person making a referral, whether it be a parent or whether it be a teacher who's bringing some concerns to the attention of the speech pathologist, and and this actually applies to the school psychologist as well, because if a student has academic concerns, a lot of times you're looking into more than just a language evaluation. But again, it can be kind of confusing. So I wanted to clarify that. A screening is different than an evaluation. A screening is simply a quick process that identifies red flags. And if there are sufficient red flags, then that means that further evaluation is warranted. So all it means is, hey, 
there's something going on over here that we need to look into further. What it is not intended to do is diagnose a specific medical condition or identify if a student is eligible to receive services because we're identifying that there is a specific disability area that requires it. That is what an evaluation does. So all the screening does is let you know if you need to evaluate further. And the reason that schools do this, and actually medical facilities use this model as well, the reason that we do these screenings is for efficiency reasons, for all parties, because it doesn't make sense to do a lengthy evaluation. So in a school situation, for example, it doesn't make sense to pull a student out from class and do this lengthy evaluation with them if it's not warranted. So that's why we do the screening first, because it takes much less time. A lot of tools can be done with some classroom observations or with just pulling the student out for maybe 10, 20 minutes. Some screening tools might take a little bit longer, but this can give the the therapist or psychologist, whatever they are, this can give that person some information to see if there is a sufficient reason to pursue that full evaluation. So on one hand, You want to look into issues that students are having, but on the other hand, they will be missing things and it does take some time to do these evaluations. So we don't want to do lengthy procedures that we don't have to because that takes time from the practitioner where they could be spending that time serving other students who are in need of services. And it's also not good for the student because they're getting pulled away from valuable class time. So it's really not a good practice for all parties to be doing procedures and testing that isn't necessary. So that is the whole reason that schools do screenings. And a lot of times schools do mass screenings with all of the students to indicate which students might need some additional services. So There are screening procedures worked into a lot of the school curriculums and procedures, but there are some additional screenings that are only done for specific students that might be having some difficulties. So that's the whole reason that we do them. And I wanted to clarify that because I get asked that question so often, and a lot of times parents would come into a a meeting and they would share screening results that might have been done by another therapist at a previous school, or they might share screening results that were done from someone in a private practice or a medical setting. And they would say, well, this screening shows that my child needs speech. And that wasn't necessarily what it was saying. It was just saying, hey, there's a concern here that we need to look into. So I wanted to clarify that because just because your child has failed a screening doesn't necessarily mean that they qualify for services. And again, all of this is to protect the rights of the child because we don't want to be giving services that they don't need because that's pulling them away from class time. When you're providing services in the school setting, it's always this balance and kind of this 
this the subtle dance of prioritizing all of these important things that you could be doing. And again, pulling them out to do one thing means that they're taken away from another thing. So that's why we have these procedures in place. Are they perfect? Of course not. But that is that is the whole purpose of this process. So I wanted to clarify that because it can get too confusing. And I've even had teachers who've said, hey, um, you know, this student, th- this parent brought this report in and there was this screening done. So does this need mean that they need services, whether it be speech services or whether it be other services from a special education teacher, for example? Well, Sometimes it means that, depending on whether or not it was a full evaluation, but sometimes it might have been just a screening. So that's important to note that distinction. If you are a parent and you're working with a therapist or a professional, it's always good to ask if whatever the tools are, if they are screenings or evaluations. Because if it is a screening, it should not be used to diagnose a disability or make some kind of a treatment plan. All that does is let you know that you need to look further into something. So not to beat a dead horse, but this is one that comes up over and over again. So that is the first step of the process is that when a child is having some kind of a a difficulty in school, a lot of times the first step is to do a screening. So what I wanted to do now is walk through the process. Now, I mentioned before that sometimes it is required to get parental consent for screenings, and sometimes it is not. And there are federal guidelines for things like this, and then there are usually state and local guidelines. So typically how it works is that there's the federal guideline, and then the state guidelines have to be at least as strict as the federal guidelines so that they're meeting the federal guidelines, but they can actually be stricter. And a lot of times that happens because the state decides that that's what they want to do for whatever reason. Maybe they think it's better depending on their population, or they also just want to make sure that they're in compliance with the federal guidelines. And then with the local guidelines, they can create their own procedures, but they have to be in compliance with the federal and state guidelines. So again, sometimes they might make a process that has more checks and balances and is actually more stringent than the state and the federal. So if you're listening to this, obviously I'm giving something that is going to be in compliance with federal guidelines because my listeners are all over the place in the US. And I think I also have some people who are in Australia, the UK and Canada. Um, So keep that in mind that you do want to be aware of what your local guidelines are. But let's talk about consent. Because this is really important to know as well, when you're moving forward with a screening. So when you are doing a mass screening, so something that is done with all of the students, So for example, a lot of times schools will do reading screenings and we want to show a number of things. Number one, where students are as far as their performance on different literacy benchmarks, but then also we want to know which students might need some specialized instruction, whether it be students who might need to be challenged because they are above a certain level or students who might need some remedial instruction to help 
catch them up. So that gives the district that type of information. Again, with these screenings, sometimes what people will do is they'll identify the students who might need some kind of specialized instruction, but then they might collect some additional information as they're going because, again, the screening doesn't diagnose something. Sometimes they want to know some additional information to, to know where they should start working with the students. But when it comes to screenings for special education services, which includes speech and language services, if you have a student who is struggling and they need a screening that the rest of the class does not need, so you are pulling that student out and doing something different for them, then typically you need parental consent. And this is also true if you are doing an observation and collecting specific data. Sometimes a therapist can go in and do kind of a general classroom observation, and they might notice certain students during that observation. But if they're going in to specifically observe one student, it is typically best practice to get parental consent to go and do that observation. So we just really want to keep parents in the loop when we are doing things with their children that are different from what the other kids are getting. So if you're going to be pulling a student out of the classroom and doing some kind of a screening test, or if you're going to be going into the classroom and specifically observing them, then you want to get parental consent. So if you're a parent, know that if you get some kind of a screening form for a speech screening, for example, and you have questions, obviously you want to let the teacher know what your questions are and they might be able to direct you to the therapist that is going to be doing the screening. And the district should be letting parents know that that's happening. Usually if a teacher would come to me and say, hey, I have concerns about this student, I want to have them screened, then I would let the parents know that I was going to be sending the form home so that it wasn't a surprise. Because, you know, if you get some kind of a consent form for your child, sometimes you're kind of like, hey, what's going on? What's, you know, what's going on with my my child here and what are they doing? So I do recommend that whoever is doing the screening, let parents know what the screening is and what's going to be involved. That is best practices as well. And so just know as a parent, if the school is pulling your child out to do some kind of a screening to see if they might need an additional evaluation, they should be getting your consent for that. That is best practice, and that is what is outlined in the federal guidelines. So let's say that we've identified that a particular student needs a language screening, and now the speech pathologist is going to conduct the screening to see if the student might need an evaluation. So here is where I recommend that therapists and really anyone involved in this process make a little bit of a mindset shift about how they look at a screening. Because a lot of times people think of a screening as a test that someone does with a student which that is part of it. But really what a screening is, is a process that helps us to determine 
if there are enough red flags to warrant an evaluation. So it's not just a test, it's a process. Technically speaking, there isn't any one specific test or score that needs to be there in order for you to move forward with an evaluation according to the federal guidelines. All that you need is sufficient information to say, hey, we should probably look further into this. Using a formal test is one way to do that, but it is not the only way to do that. So you could use a formal test and do an observation and collect some work samples from the student, have some conversations with the teacher, have some conversations with the parent. There are a number of ways you can do this. So technically speaking, you don't need a formal test score in order to move forward with an evaluation. All that you need is enough information to let you know if there are enough red flags. So a lot of times people think, I need the test. I need this score to give me a specific number that says, hey, I should evaluate the student. But the problem with relying too much on formal assessments is what I said before, that sometimes a student might not perform in a way that's representative of their abilities in a 10-minute screening. So sometimes what happens is that kids underperform. So they might fail the screening because they were tired, they were missing something that they didn't want to miss, and they were distracted, they didn't understand the directions. So there are a number of reasons why someone might fail a screening but not necessarily need a full evaluation. So sometimes there can be a false positive, but there can also be a false negative where sometimes the screening tool doesn't really tap into the areas that are causing the difficulty. And and that happens on language screenings because again, it's it's really hard to evaluate language because there are so many different functional nuances that happen in real life situations. And so sometimes a student might pass a language screening, but when you actually look at their classroom assignments and how they perform in a real life situation, there are a number of different things that come up that just that you just can't necessarily see by sitting there and doing a test with a student. So while I do think it's fine to use screening tools that are tests, I think that we should be very careful about only using that. And I would often even encourage SLPs because there aren't a lot of great screening tools out there to have a good repertoire of non-standardized procedures that they use. Even if it's just having a really structured conversation with the teacher or a process for collecting different work samples, because technically that's all you need. You don't necessarily have to do a formal screening, legally speaking, in order to move forward with an evaluation. You technically don't even have to do a screening. A parent can make a request for you to evaluate a child, and you could do a screening if you wanted to make sure that it was going to be a good use of everyone's time. But technically speaking, if you have enough concerns, you don't have to do some formal screening in order to move forward if you already have enough information to let you know that there are concerns. So I wanted to just make that clear because a lot of times therapists will feel like they have to do a screening because it's part of the process, but they don't technically have to. If you know that a student is struggling based on the benchmark screenings that were done district-wide 
or based on some screening results that maybe a psychologist did or that a special education teacher did, or the general education teacher did. They have a lot of information already that you can use to just let you know if there are red flags. Obviously, that shouldn't be used to diagnose a language disorder, but that can certainly be used for screening information. So I have had times when students were going through evaluations for something else. So for example, the psychologist was looking into whether the student had a specific learning disability. And there are certain tests that a psychologist will do that really tap into language because there is some overlap with what the psychologist might be assessing and what a speech pathologist might be assessing because they're both looking at things that are tied to cognition. And I have had a psychologist that I've worked with in the past, and this has happened a handful of times where they said, hey, this student did poorly on this subtest that taps into language and vocabulary, and I think that there might be some language concerns here. And I used that information that the psychologist gave me based on their evaluation or their screening as essentially my screening. So I did not use it to diagnose, but I did use it to indicate that I should move forward with a language evaluation. And with those types of situations, I would usually have a conversation with the teacher or the overall team that is evaluating the student before I would move forward with the evaluation. But I often would do that instead of doing a formal screening because I felt I had enough information. Now, obviously, if you're going to evaluate an additional area, then you need to get parental consent for that and let the parent know that you are evaluating language in addition to whatever else, but you can move forward. So just to clarify, what sometimes happens is that a parent might give consent to look into a learning disability. And then in the process of evaluating for the learning disability, we uncover some other areas that need to be evaluated. And so we would let the parents know and then have them sign off on evaluating additional areas. So that can happen sometimes as well. So if you are a therapist, just know that if you are doing those screenings, you don't necessarily always have to do a test based on federal guidelines. Now, your district might have specific requirements or your state might have specific requirements. So as always, know your local guidelines, but you don't necessarily have to based on the federal guidelines. And I will link to the section in those guidelines that explain the process for screening. So this can be kind of helpful because again, even if you do have to do a formal screening, the guidelines don't necessarily say that you have to have a certain score. Now, I do get questions from speech pathologists about what specific tools they should use. If you are looking at language, they should definitely be looking at things like performance on math and reading comprehension or any other literacy areas, depending on what grade they're in. So they should definitely be looking at that information in addition to their formal screening. 
the the screening tool that I used the most often when I was in the school setting was the Clinical Evaluation of Language Fundamentals 5 screening test. Now, I know that a lot of people in the SLP world, because of some issues with sensitivity and specificity, don't like the self for evaluation. And I agree with that. The This particular evaluation tool, so the, the self five specifically, there's a screener and there's a full evaluation. The full evaluation does tend to underrepresent students, so meaning that a lot of students who do have language disorders and need help will not score low enough on the test to qualify when they actually do need help. The screening tool, again, because it's a screening and not an evaluation, I felt a little more comfortable using the screening because it was just one piece of information that I was using, but I also didn't have a lot of other options when it came to good screening. So this was something that I did use. Again, I did interpret the results with caution though. So if you are gonna use the self five screening test, remember that you can have false positives and false negatives, and you should supplement that with some academic data. For younger students, one that was used often in the setting that I was in is the Preschool Language Scale 5th Edition screening test. Again, with all of these tools, there are new additions that come out periodically, so you always want to make sure that you are using the most current version. Always know that when you're using these formal screenings, interpret the results with caution and always be supplementing it with additional information because we don't want to miss students who actually do need to be evaluated because maybe they didn't score low enough on the screening. And then also we don't want to do the opposite thing where we're evaluating all these students that don't really need to be evaluated because they're getting false positives because of whatever reason. There are a lot of different reasons that they could have a false positive. So we do want to supplement that with additional information. So then the question becomes, how do I get that additional information? Well, my best recommendation is to have a process that you use in order to have conversations with the teacher, in order to get the information you need so that you know how that student is doing on language-based assessments and, and just activities in general in the classroom. I have created the academic language rating scale to help you do that. So again, this tool can be used a couple of different ways. You can simply give the rating scale to the teacher and have them fill it out. And then it is more like a formal screening, even though it's not standardized. It does help the teacher to quantify and rate specific areas where the student is struggling. So you can at least see, okay, what are some of the specific red flags that the teacher is seeing based on the way that they're scoring the student in this scale. So that can be used to kind of be a conversation starter. So you can give the teacher the rating scale, they can fill it out. And then once they filled it out, you can look at it and say, okay, tell me a little bit about these areas where the student is struggling. What specifically are you seeing? And do you have some additional classroom data that you can use to support what you're saying? So it can kind of just 
make the process a little bit more efficient because a lot of times when you go in there to talk to a teacher, sometimes it's kind of hard to know what to ask and what information to focus on. So this just helps you to guide those conversations. Yes, you can absolutely use it just in isolation as a rating scale. Again, that is something that at least helps you to identify if there are obvious things that are happening in the classroom where the student is struggling because what that can do is even though it cannot diagnose an issue, what it can do is if the teacher is saying, well, the student is struggling with grammar, for example, or they are struggling to follow directions in the classroom, then that gives you an idea of what kind of evaluation tools you might need to use when you do go through with the full evaluation. So again, it's just something that can help streamline the process for you and supplement the other screening tools that you might be using, especially if you don't feel like you have any good screening tools available to you. It's perfectly okay to use those non-standardized tools as well. And in some situations, it might even be a better option for you. I hope this clears up some of the questions that come up when it comes to language screenings and just screenings in general that are done in the school systems or even in medical settings where we have to consider if we should do a full language evaluation to determine if a student needs language therapy. Now, with the medical setting, obviously, it is relevant to still collect some of this data. So for example, if an SLP were to be in a private practice, if they have a student who is coming to them because they need help with language-based skills that are affecting them at school, they would still need to collaborate with the people in the school setting, whether it be the SLP in the school setting or whether it be the teachers. So they could still utilize this process. It would just look a little bit different because if you have an SLP who's working in the schools, sometimes it's a little bit easier to just pop into a teacher's room than if you are not in that setting, but you can certainly still have that collaboration. So that's certainly a possibility. So you want to still utilize some of these same tools and procedures regardless of the setting that you're in because ultimately the goal is still the same. We want to help the child to function in their daily environment, which for a school-aged child, one of the most common things in their daily environment is school. So school is certainly relevant and school procedures are certainly relevant because oftentimes you are working with the child who is in the school systems, even if you aren't. So that's something to consider as well. Before we wrap up, I wanted to mention for those of you who want to get an additional tool that will help just guide the screening process for you, that will help you to streamline your conversations and give you some insight as far as the additional information you might need to collect in order to make good decisions for both screenings and evaluations, then definitely check out the Academic Language Skills Rating Scale. Again, all this is is a non-standardized tool that I have shared with my Language Therapy Advanced Foundation students to help them to make good decisions during screenings and also to gather information on students who might already be on their caseloads. 
obviously for this episode and for this context that we've been discussing today, we're really more talking about screenings, but it can be used multiple ways. So like I said before, I am making this one resource publicly available and you can sign up for it by going to drkarenspeech.com backslash language screening. Again, that is drkarenspeech.com backslash language screening. So now we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thank you again for listening. If you know someone who needs this information, if you know someone who has a child who is going through a screening or who is going through some kind of a process similar to the one that I've described in the school situation, then definitely share this episode with them. As always, it helps us so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For now, we'll wrap up, but thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 49. simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test, you can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE.